Well, good afternoon, everyone, and uh, thank you so much for being here today. Um, I'm really excited to be able to do this today. Uh, I, I can't tell you how much it means to me to be able to do this, to be able to preach in English, which I haven't done in a while, so you might have to <laughs> bear with me a bit. Um, but also to be able to worship in English and to sing songs together and to pray together like this. It's a huge blessing personally, and I'm also really excited about um, what I hope God will do through this opportunity in uh, this city and the surrounding cities. So um, your being here today is a real blessing, and I'm, I'm grateful for it, so thank you. And I hope that this uh, time today will also bless you as well. So today... Um, we're beginning a new series. The timing of this actually worked out perfectly. We just ended our series on um, the Sermon on the Mount last week, and so we're beginning our, our kind of short summer series on the parables of Jesus. And uh, we'll be focusing our studies on the parables in both Matthew and Luke. Now, several of the parables that we'll talk about are found in both Matthew and Luke. Uh, maybe there's a slightly different version, um, but it's the same basic parable. But some are unique to Matthew and some are unique to Luke. Now, we're not going to be able to cover, obviously, every parable of Jesus in this series. Um, but we're going to cover, I guess, some of the main ones, so to speak. And uh, I'm looking forward to going over these with you in the coming weeks. Now, before we get into our parable today, I want to start by introducing you very briefly to uh, Jesus' parables in a general way. Okay. So before we study the parables, it's probably helpful to ask, what is a parable? What is a parable? And I think rather than focusing on a, a definition to a parable, it's probably best to think of them in terms of their function, which is this. Jesus' parables are handles for understanding his teaching on the kingdom. Jesus' parables are handles for understanding his teaching on the kingdom. Um, the, the famous Danish theologian Kierkegaard uh, made an important distinction between direct and indirect communication when it comes to learning. So Kierkegaard noted that the uh, direct communication is needed to convey information, right? So if you're going to convey just basically facts, you need direct communication. Here is the fact. But when it comes to fully understanding and applying that information, indirect communication is also needed. And the reason for that is what happens is the more information you have, the more you think you really understand and then new information is forced into that box that's already in your mind, right? So, for example, let's say that you've learned country X is bad, okay? Country X is bad. But then you hear information that says country X did something good. Now, most people, what they're going to do is they're going to try to fit that second point into the first point. I know that country X is bad, so whatever somebody says country X did something good, there has to be something wrong about that. So, you know, that, that second fact has to be mistaken. So either they'll change it to say, well, it looks like Country X did something good, but it's actually bad. Or they'll say, yes, Country X did something good, but for bad reasons. Their motives are bad, right? Now, sometimes that could be true. That could be correct. But sometimes it's the case that Country X actually did something good. And they did it for good reasons. And you have to figure out what to make of that. Now, maybe it was a one-time event, right? Maybe they, they'll never do it again. Or perhaps it means your first information was mistaken. Maybe country X actually isn't as bad as I thought they were. Maybe it's wrong. But you see the point. We usually try to fit our new information into our old boxes, and that keeps us from learning fully. And actually, Jesus talked about this very thing. He talked about new wineskins and old wineskins. 
You don't put new wine into old wineskins because what will it do? It'll just burst the wineskin. So you actually have to have a new wineskin for new wine. You have to change that box basically. So as Jesus is teaching us about his kingdom, about the kingdom of God, he wants us to open these boxes so we can understand the depth of his kingdom. He wants to change our wineskin so that we can actually understand the depth and get that new wine that he is giving us, so to speak, and then enjoy thus abundant life in his kingdom. So that's part of why he teaches in these parables. Parables are indirect communication that helps us think more deeply about Jesus' teaching on the kingdom. Uh, Parables basically break down our barriers, and they help us think clearly about what he is teaching. And because of that, um, Jesus' parables also help us deeply appreciate the truth of what he's teaching and move us to actually respond in faith. Not just to say, here's information, here's a fact that I believe, but to respond accordingly. They touch our hearts so that we actually live out what he's teaching us. So with that in mind, there's three temptations that we need to avoid when we're dealing with parables. Now, the first is to find deep meaning in every tiny little detail. Uh, we have to be careful not to press, press too much meaning into every single fine point of a parable. Uh, because when we try to force meaning into even the tiniest detail, we can actually produce false teaching, even dangerously false teaching, because we're trying to press this tiny little point that wasn't intended for that. Now, of course, we should take every word seriously because it's God's word. It's the teaching of Jesus. And I don't think Jesus chose words accidentally, right? So we, we want to be careful about that. But we must also be careful not to press points that were not intended to be pressed, okay? Uh, related to that, the second temptation is to try to understand every single question we might have about the parable. So Jesus tells a parable, and we're like, well, what about this? And what about that? And what about this part and that part, right? Okay, and, and I get those. Those questions are natural. But parables are intended to be brief and to the point. They don't uh, deal with unnecessary issues that are beside the point of the parable. And so sometimes we're going to have questions about the parable that we may not have a satisfactory answer to. And we just kind of have to accept that and not allow that to keep us from seeing the main point and keep us from actually learning from what Jesus is trying to show us. And the third temptation is to use uh, the parables to support some pet issue, right? I've got this kind of agenda, this thing that's really important to me. And so I'm going to kind of like find Jesus' parable and try to apply it to that. You know, parables have specific meanings which Jesus is trying to get across. So we have to be careful not to kind of twist the parables into teaching ideas they weren't intended to teach or supporting something that they weren't necessarily intended to support. That doesn't mean that agenda or that idea is a bad idea necessarily. It just means this parable may not have been intended for that use. Um, The parables of Jesus are not weapons to use for my personal agenda. They are teachings intended to bring us to a deeper understanding of his kingdom and to encourage us to respond to the call of God in Jesus Christ. Okay, so with that said... Let's actually get into today's parables, the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. Now, I'm going to focus mostly today on uh, the sheep, on the lost sheep, but uh, we'll also think some about the lost coin along the way. So these two parables um, obviously are followed up immediately by the famous parable of the prodigal son. And uh, there's really important connections there, but that story uh, is really amazing in its own right. So we're kind of We're going to set that one aside for today, basically, and study that one on a different day. But I definitely want to study that one. Uh, But because it's so kind of unique in its own way and tells the same idea, but in a very different and powerful way, we're going to consider that differently. So today, let's consider these two parables by noticing three points in each. Okay, In each parable, there is a lost object, there's a search, and there's a celebration. Okay, A lost object, a search, and a celebration. So first, a lost object. 
So it's important to understand here that these parables come in response to the complaints of the Pharisees and scribes in verse 2. And their complaint is this, this man receives sinners and eats with them. This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now one thing we know about Jesus, both through the stories that we read from his disciples, and what we actually also read through the complaints of his enemies as well, is that Jesus spent time with social outcasts. Jesus spent time with people who society had said, we don't want you here, right? Um, Jesus spent time with people that others hated. An example of this is the tax collectors, right? They were considered traitors and were hated by people. Um, You might can understand that, especially if these tax collectors were collecting money for Rome. You know, you can see them as a traitor to your own people. And on top of that, they obviously, as we know from the stories, they took extra money for themselves. They kind of got some kickbacks. So they're not exactly liked people. And yet here Jesus spends time with them. He goes into their houses. He eats with them. But we may also think from John 4, the Samaritan woman, right? This is not just a Samaritan, which is enough for most Jews, but she's sexually immoral. And she's a social outcast in her own community, which are outcasts from the Jewish community, right? So it's kind of like I think about the the thing from uh, um, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Even among misfits, you're misfits, you know? Uh, I don't know if you see that movie. But anyway, that's that's one of the things. Like, you know, she's even a misfit among misfits. And yet, Jesus is talking to her out in the open. Now, these are the kinds of people that Jesus ministered to. And they were the people who were drawn to Jesus. And so the religious leaders of the day attacked Jesus for this. Because they say, well, you're lax on sin. You don't take sin seriously, right? And that's why he'll spend time with these kinds of people. However, while Jesus loves and serves these outcasts, notice that he does not deny their sin. Okay, he doesn't deny that. In fact, he describes these people as being lost. He uses that word, they're lost. Now, at this point, I think it's easy to get sidetracked by the cause of the lostness. Okay, so we may see the sheep and say, well, the sheep wandered off from the shepherd. And while that might even be implied, it's not actually stated in Luke. In Luke's account, he doesn't say that. Okay, or we may think uh, the coin was lost because someone was careless. But again, that isn't actually said in the story. The cause just isn't addressed. He doesn't say why it was lost. Rather, the focus is on the condition of the sheep and the coin. They are both just lost. That's what they are. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to be lost? I think we, especially for Christians, we use that term very frequently. You know, people, the lost people in the world who are lost, we use that. What does that mean exactly? Well, I think a really good way to understand this is by looking at what Jesus says, or what it says about Jesus in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 36, where we read that Jesus had compassion on the crowds who followed him, Because it says they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. They were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now, I think, again, that's a simple way of understanding Jesus' view of being lost. So to be lost means at least two things. First, to be lost is to be in danger. If a sheep becomes separated from the shepherd and the flock, that sheep is in real danger of being attacked, or we might say harassed, by predators, right? And it's the same thing when you're spiritually lost. We're in danger of false religion and philosophies that claim to teach the truth. They claim to lead us in the right direction, but they actually lead us further away and into an even more dangerous place. Uh, we're in danger of the effects of sin, which easily consumes and destroys us, right? Uh, sin will just totally destroy your life. And we've seen this, I, I, we can all think of so many cases probably of people that we've known or certainly maybe high profile cases that we've seen where that's happened. And of course, most importantly, perhaps, we're in danger of being separated from God forever, right? So there's a great danger here. So these are spiritual predators which harass us when we're lost because we're not where we need to be. 
But to be lost is also, and this is important, is also to be helpless. So one of the interesting points about sheep, okay, is that when they're lost, eventually a sheep basically is going to lie down and just give up and never find its way back. It just stops. It's just like, I'm done. (laughs) It doesn't go anywhere, so I'm done, and that's it. And I think a lot of us may know that feeling, right? The feeling of kind of just being lost in the world and feeling like we can't find our way. And sometimes we just want to give up, be like, I don't want to think about this anymore, you know? I'm just done. I'm good, whatever, you know? And, And Jesus said, we're helpless, right? We need someone to guide us. And we may not like to admit it, but I think we know that's true. We're lost and we need help. In fact, we don't only need guidance, but we need to be found first, right? We don't just need a voice to call out. We need to be found. And that leads us to a second point, or our second point today, a search. So in both parables, the lost object is searched for by the owner. The shepherd goes out and searches for the lost sheep until he finds it. The woman lights a lamp, so presumably it's nighttime, and she realizes the coin is gone. But she lights the lamp and searches for the coin until she finds it. And actually, this is kind of interesting, by the way, because um, archaeologists have actually found in modern day times, they found um, first century houses, and they found coins stuck in basically the rocks that were in there. So it literally took thousands of years and an archaeologist to find the coins that were lost in these houses. Um, so this actually was a, a significant problem, apparently, for people, that, that you could lose a coin in these places, and that's why she would be searching for it. And so Jesus says that's the same for us. When we're, when we're lost, though, just like these people search, God searches. So you see, that's, that's the basic logic behind the parable, and actually behind many of Jesus' parables. It's basically an an, an argument from the lesser to the greater, right? If you, being human, would go after even a sheep or a coin when you lose one, how much more will God pursue those who are spiritually lost? If you as a human will do this, how much more will God do this? And I think that argument reveals two just amazing truths about both us and about God. So first, this parable shows us that we are immensely valuable to God. That we are immensely valuable to God. Again, the primary focus of these two parables is dealing with the Pharisees and the scribes and their attack on Jesus for welcoming and eating with sinners. Now, this complaint reveals something important about the way that the religious leaders saw themselves and the way they saw God and the way they saw religion generally. Okay, So these religious leaders believed you're valuable to God to the extent that you're good. Right? If you're good, if you do everything right, then you're valuable to God. Um, and, and so the Pharisees and scribes, they had kind of built their identity, they had built their self-worth on their righteousness, how good they are, and how well they obey God's law. And so for them, these people who have so many problems, who don't understand Scripture or follow Scripture as well as they do, they're just sinners, and they won't be valuable to God unless and until they get their lives together. Until that point, they're useless to God. Now, we'll talk more about this when we talk about the prodigal son. But for now, it's enough to say that their complaint shows how they think about God and salvation and religion, which is as a meritocracy, right? You earn your status before God. You earn your status. And what Jesus shows them and and us through this parable is that, no, you're not valuable to God because you do everything right. You are valuable to God because you belong to him. And you are valuable to God because he chose you to value and you see, this this is the gospel in a nutshell. In fact, many commentators call this the gospel within a gospel, right? This is, I mean, Luke 15 really shares the gospel at its heart. That God loves you, not because you're so wonderful, not because you've done everything so well that you've earned his attention, but he loves you simply as an act of his grace. 
It's just his grace. He doesn't love you because you deserve it, but because of who he is. Now, we tend to focus our attention on that word lost by talking about the condition of the object, and I do think there's value to that. But in fact, if you, if you pay attention to the story, the emphasis in the parables is less on the state of the object and more on the state of the owner who lost something. That's the point, right? The point is that the owner lost something. What they lost was valuable to them enough that they go and search for it. That's the point. And that's how valuable we are to God. Even lost and as sinful as we are, even though we're replaceable, right? Replaceable. We're deeply valued to God. And that, that's the gospel. It's grace. It's unearned. It's undeserved. It's freely given. And these parables show us even the extent of God's grace. The shepherd so values the one sheep that he's willing to leave the 99 just to go find that one that he lost. Now, someone might say, look, you've still got 99 sheep, right? Why go look for one? You've got 99. Do you really need this one so desperately you need to go out in the wilderness and try to find this thing? That's dangerous for you. It's probably already dead anyway, right? Don't, Don't worry about that. And someone might say, why look for a single coin? I mean, you've got the nine. You'll eventually get another coin and replace it. And the coins here, by the way, are drachma, which is about a day's wage. So this life, this isn't life savings we're talking about, right? This isn't like, you know, multiple years worth. This is just a day's wage. It's not, I mean, yeah, it's certainly to somebody who works a day's, a day's wage, that's a big deal, especially in that time, maybe. But it's not the end of the world, right? So it's replaceable. And that's how we think about value. We're very practical, right? We weigh our options, kind of cost-to-benefit ratio. Okay, that sheep, he wandered off, but here's how much time it's probably going to take me to find him. And then... I got to carry him back, and you know, I'm not even sure what condition he'll be in. Is it really worth it? Yeah, I don't know. You know, that's how we think about things. But Jesus says that's not how God operates. God doesn't think that way. Each and every human being, even lost as we are, is of such value to God that He is willing to go and search for that one as if it were the only one. That's what His. That's how the kind of value that He places on us, and that is not merit. It is grace. It's not what we earn. It's grace. That's it. There is no other explanation for it other than grace. But notice again what the accusation of the religious leaders is. Jesus receives sinners and eats with them. He receives them. And that word here really means he welcomes them. He accepts them. He doesn't reject them. See, the religious leaders, they wouldn't be caught dead with one of these people, right? They're not going to be around these people in the house of a tax collector, let alone talking to an adulterous Samaritan woman out in the open, no less. They're not going to be found in that situation. And yet Jesus, he sits with them. He accepts them. He eats with them. And especially in this culture, sitting down and eating a meal with somebody, that was a symbol of your fellowship with that person, your acceptance. And Jesus is saying, yes, I'm willing to have a meal with you. God himself in the flesh welcomed and fellowships with sinners. Now why? That's the question we need to think about. Why? Why would Jesus welcome and fellowship with people who he himself, the God of all creation, recognized were lost and in sin? Why wouldn't he condemn them like the religious leaders did? And the reason is because he wants them to know that God's kingdom is open even to them so that they can enter and experience God's transforming love. That's it. He wants them to know that God's kingdom is open to them so they can enter that kingdom and be transformed by the love of God. He loves them enough to come to where they are, but he also loves them enough to bring them out of where they are, just as the shepherd with the sheep. Right? The shepherd doesn't go, find, go out and find the sheep and be like, oh, hey, there you are. Well, just wanted to let you know I, I care. See ya. Right? He brings them out. 
He brings them out of where they are. But this parable also shows us that we are so valuable to God, and this is important, that he searches for us. He searches for us. Now, this is one of the major differences between the gospel and every other religious teaching in the world. Okay? In every other religious teaching, it is you who does the searching. You search, you find, you exert the effort. But in the gospel, God searches for you. Okay? God is the one who goes out and finds the sheep. He wanders the woods. He braves the dangers. And he even carries the sheep back on his shoulders. You see, again, it's grace. It's not merit, it's grace. And that's not to say the parable teaches that our actions don't matter, by the way. That's not what the parable teaches. But the parable certainly does reveal that our salvation begins with the gracious work of God. Our salvation begins with his work. This was true with Jesus, who was directly going to these sinful people to bring them back to God, which the religious leaders refused to do, but it's still true today as well. God is still searching for lost sheep. There's a uh, a famous passage, well, I mean, maybe famous, I I like it anyway, maybe it's not famous, but anyway, um, in Acts 17, where Paul is speaking to, uh, you know, Greek philosophers, thinkers in Athens, okay, kind of speaking to academics, we might say. And he's here in Athens, and here's what he says, especially notice verses 26 and 27 of Acts 17. From one man, God made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. It's true that we are to seek God. That invitation is all throughout the Bible. God is constantly calling on people to seek him. So we absolutely should be seeking God. But notice that in this passage, what Paul teaches us is this. Even our search for God begins with God's work. Our search begins with God's work. I mean, verse 26 here is really just remarkable if you reflect on it. He marked out their times and their boundaries. In other words, God actually planned out the times and the places that we would live, He laid out the path of history for this purpose, that each human would search for him and find him. That's what his goal is, for us to search for him and to find him. God planned the time and the place that we live so that we would seek and find him. That's the goal. So you see, our search for God begins with his search for us. Okay, When we search for God, it's not like, oh, look at me. I care more about God than other people do. If I'm searching for God, it's because he was searching for me. That's where it begins. And that's true for every single person. God searches for us, and that is the reason that we search for him. If you're a Christian, you probably know exactly what I'm talking about. Okay, You can probably point to the ways that God has been working in your life to lead you to him. But even for non-Christians, I think non-Christians can see this too that God has been pulling on their life. I think people see these hints all over the place. Actually, C.S. Lewis, he said this exact thing. For him, what pulled him towards Christianity was exactly this, that he felt this, that God was pulling on his life. He, he actually said, um, right before he became a Christian, that he basically was, I, I can't remember exactly how he said it, but effectively, you know, the most, this is a paraphrase, but kind of the most anti-Christian Christian that there was because he didn't want this. This wasn't what he wanted, but he felt like God was just pulling him in this direction and he couldn't deny it anymore, basically, is his point, right? And I think many of us know that experience. God 
is searching for us. God is searching for you. And it's not because you were searching for him first. John says almost exactly this in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 19. We love because he first loved us. God doesn't love me because I loved him. I love him because he loved me. God prepared these things before we were even born. He's not passively waiting for you to get your act together. He's not searching because you finally got close enough, so he's like, okay, I'll finally throw out my hand to you here. He's searching because he loves people, because he loves you, and out of his grace, he actively pursues us. God searches for the sheep, for the adulterous sheep, for the confused sheep, for the addicted sheep, the dishonest sheep, the hateful sheep, the angry sheep, the selfish sheep, the greedy sheep. He searches because he loves you, because he is good. It's simply grace. But we see God's love and grace not only in the search, but also in his response to recovery. When God finds what is lost, there is celebration. Now, I think it's easy to imagine God is kind of the stoic being who calls on us to repent, right? He says, repent of your sins. And when we finally do turn around, you know, he kind of like glances down over his glasses and is like, okay, I got my eye on you. You know, that's kind of how we imagine it, right? He's just sort of like looking there like, fine, but I'm looking for you and we'll see how this goes. But that's not how God is depicted in the parables. God celebrates the recovery of what's lost. It's valuable to him. So when he finds it, he celebrates. And the celebration is marked with joy. Look at verse 7 of Luke 15. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. More joy. Now I want to point out two things about this joy and we'll close today. First, this joy once again shows how much God loves people. Lost people, sinners. God doesn't deny their sin. He doesn't ignore it. He doesn't deny their lostness. He doesn't deny that at all. But neither does he deny their deep value and their deep worth. Their value is so great in God's eyes that when they are found, when they come home, when they enter his kingdom, heaven is full of joy. And the joy is so great that even the cross was not too much for Jesus. This is what we're told in Hebrews 12 and verse 2. Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Think about that. Jesus went to the cross for joy. What joy could that possibly be? What joy is there in being crucified? That's absurd. But if you think about it, it's surely quite a load to bear for a shepherd to carry a sheep back, right? I mean, I tend to think sheep are probably kind of heavy. Um, and I can't really imagine like carrying a sheep over my shoulders for who knows how many kilometers this is. This guy was probably walking. It's probably a pretty long distance. And yet he doesn't seem to care about it because of the joy of finding the sheep. And likewise, there was a load on the shoulders of Christ, the cross, but he endured it because of the joy of finding us, setting us free from our sin, that joy, bringing us into his kingdom. There's a joy in that for Jesus. And if even the cross could be endured for the joy of saving people, think of how much we are worth in the eyes of God. Think of what that says about our worth to God. But remember what Jesus says about the shepherd and the woman in verses 6 and and verse 9 as well. What do they do? They rejoice, but they both invite their friends and their neighbors to celebrate with them. Their joy is not purely an individual joy, but a communal joy. That is to say, it's a joy that spills over to others. You know, C.S. Lewis also talked about this. He, he talks about, in his uh, book on the Psalms, he talks about how whenever we love something, whenever we find something praiseworthy, 
it naturally spills out into praise to other people. We want to tell other people about this thing that we've discovered, right? I mean, what happens if you're going around and you find a delicious restaurant somewhere? And you're like, man, right? I mean, as American, I might think of like a hamburger place or something like that, right? Or maybe like recently we were uh, traveling and we found this amazing Mexican place. And what do we want to do when we, when we find that place? We're like, I want to tell other people about it. Look at this. We take pictures of our food. We're like, yeah, this is so good, right? That's what we naturally do. It doesn't, it doesn't even take work. It's natural because we find it so joyful that we want to share it with other people. And that's what God wants for us. Jesus wants the joy of heaven to spill over into our lives and through our lives as well. When the Pharisees and scribes saw these people coming into the kingdom, their instinct was complaint, right? How could he spend time with these people? How could he do that? But Jesus says there's joy in heaven, joy before God. God himself rejoices when a lost sinner is found, and we should too. And if we don't rejoice, but complain because of whatever silly reason we might have, then perhaps that means we're not among God's friends. So I want to close with this. First, simply bask today in the joy of knowing how deeply you are loved by God. You're not loved because you are worthy. You're not. I'm not. I know I'm not. Um, I imagine you're not, but I know I'm not. Okay? You're not loved because you earned it. You're loved because he is good and because he has placed immeasurable value on you as a person. That love, only that love, has the power to transform our lives. Because any love that requires me to earn it is a love that I can lose, is a love that I can look at and say, well, I'm not good enough, and now this person's going to treat me badly because I didn't do it the right way. And that's why we're always scared in relationships. That's why we're always scared about things. We're always scared, I'm going to lose this person because I'm not doing it the right way. But that's not God's love. God's love doesn't say, you know, I don't love you because you haven't done good enough. That doesn't mean that there's not you know, an aspect of the relationship that we have to respond. But his love is, does not start with us doing everything right. His love starts with his love. It starts with him. He's the source. He's the beginning. It's grace. And so we have to remember that. And only that love can transform our lives because only that love sets us free in a way that no other relationship can. And that's what it should do. It should transform our lives. The love of God is the love that comes to where we are but, of course, as I said, it doesn't leave us where we are, but it does come to where we are. But his love brings us back, brings us into his kingdom, so we can be transformed into the image of Jesus. And if you are in his kingdom, then we need to make sure that the same attitude of love is in us for others. You know, we're surrounded every day by people who probably annoy us. Um, whether rightly or wrongly, it's just a fact. We get annoyed at people, right? People who we may think are evil, troublesome, sick, just a pain, whatever. And maybe they are. Maybe they really are. But you know what? Those people are loved by God. Just as much as this, just as much as everything we've been talking about, all of those people, if you think of the most annoying person in your life, the most annoying person that you're just like, they just grate on my nerves constantly, that person is deeply loved by God. And so we have to ask ourselves, are they loved by me? Do I love them? Am I loving these people well? Now, let me tell you, if you're trying to do that by your own power, it's not going to happen. But if you are actually realizing the weight and the depth of the love that God is giving to you, that will transform your heart to love other people. That's the only way. There is no other way other than the gracious love given to us by God. So this is a question we, we have to consider seriously and wrestle with. But God loves them deeply. God loves them enough. God loves that annoying person enough that even the cross was an acceptable burden in order to save them. 
So let us love them as well. And let us be a church of people that are filled with the same joy and same desire to see them recovered just like Jesus had. And a joy that is even willing to do what we can to bring them into the kingdom. And if we do that, then we too will be among God's friends and we can experience that joy together with God and his kingdom. Uh, Let's close with prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the great love that you have given to us. Lord, you know our sin. We cannot hide our sin and our, our failures from you. You know every sin we've committed. You know every wicked deed, every wicked thought. You know the attitudes that we have. Lord, you know all these things. And yet, as we see in Jesus, you love us deeply. And we know that we don't deserve that, Father. And yet you love us, and we're so grateful for it. And Father, I pray that somehow that that knowledge would sink deep into our hearts and transform our hearts and transform our lives so that we live as people of Jesus, as we, that we live as people who have been rescued by the true shepherd. Thank you so much, God, for loving us that way. I pray that you would help our hearts to be such that we love other people in that same way as well. Lord, you know that's hard for us. We are selfish, we're self-centered, and when people bother us, we just, we want revenge, we want, you know, punishment, we want justice. Lord, help us to be people who love like you love. Father, we know that you, your love also calls us to change, not just towards others, but even in our own lives. And I pray that that love would also shape our lives so that we find sin less and less appealing and our relationship with you more and more desirable, Father. Thank you, Father, for everything that you have done for us and for the great love that we have in Jesus. Thank you. We pray this in his name. Amen.